is in the Bible this morning, but land ultimately in Philippians chapter 1, the New Testament book of Philippians. Let me read this morning verses 19 to 26. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, the Apostle Paul there referring to his imprisonment. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live on in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, and which I should choose I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account, and convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and your joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is God's word for his people. You may be seated. We love uh, at Harvest uh, to not take ourselves very seriously. I trust that's been amply evident already this morning. (laughs) But to take God very seriously. What a joy and a privilege to uh, look at and talk about and sort of feast our, our eyes and our minds on big truths about God. That's what we're going to do this morning as we open up the Bible and uh, kick off, as we alluded to earlier, a series that will carry us through the summer months, uh, looking at various names uh, and titles uh, uh, in the Bible of God. Uh, we mentioned earlier that, that kind of our whole focus as a church this summer is connecting. We want to connect in a different way as the seasons change and we all sort of shift gears a little bit schedule-wise. Our goal is still the same, to connect, connect with God, connect with His church, and connect with people. And, and we hope, our, our, our trust and our prayer is that this series of sermons will help us do that, especially it's designed to help us connect with God. We refer to uh, the names and titles of God in Scripture. Every one of us bears numerous names and titles. Uh, I think of myself. You could refer to me in a variety of ways, legitimately so. You could call me a father. You could call me a husband. You can call me a pastor. You could call me a son. You can call me a brother. You can call me a cousin. All of those titles are true. They're all a little bit different from one another. They all say something different about who I am and the role that I play. But in addition to those names or titles, I also have my proper name, as do you. And as was uh, the case so often in the Old Testament time period and Old Testament cultures, the names, the actual proper names of people meant something, and God's name is no different. So we're going to look at a variety through the summer of God's names and titles in the Bible. He is referred to in uh, several dozen different ways, but we're going to take about a dozen of them, 11 I think it is, of the most common ways that God is referred to in Bible, the most frequent names and titles used of him, because each of them speaks something about who he is, about his nature, and about his character. And as a result of that, it helps us get to know him and how to relate with him better. That's our goal. Uh, Each uh, Sunday, each uh, sermon, we're going to 
take one of these names or titles of God and seek to answer four questions. Uh, no matter what else gets said, our, our goal is that we will answer the same four questions every week. What is the name? You know, what does it say about the character of God would be the first question that we want to answer. Uh, secondly, um, what does this teach us about who God is? Um, what does it reveal about God's character? So firstly, where's, where's the name? Where do you see it in the Bible? Secondly, what does that say about God? Thirdly, how does that impact us? How does that shape and change the way that we know God and relate to him or our understanding of how he relates to us? How is this practical for us? And lastly, and most importantly, what does this say about the gospel, which is rooted in the character of God? It is the master story of all of the Bible. And how does God's character play into that? That's what we're going to do this summer. And we're starting off this morning with God's proper name, as it were. We've titled this whole series, Hello, My Name Is... Just running off that idea of introducing yourself by name to people you don't know. God introduces himself by his many names in scripture to a people that do not know him so that we might know him better. This morning we kick off starting with the most common name of God, his proper name. We usually in modern American English pronounce it Yahweh. It's been pronounced various ways throughout history and in some cultures not pronounced at all out of reverence for God. But this is the name he gives of himself. And just before we dive into this, let me just give a quick personal note here. Um, th- this morning is what I like to call, and sometimes we talk about kind of behind the scenes here at Harvest as we're planning services. This is like a big God Sunday, okay? Now, we hope God is big in everything that we do every Sunday, but there's, there's some Sundays in particular where you're really just focusing on the awesomeness and the majesty of God in a specific way because of the part of the Bible that you're studying. And this morning is one of those times. This is a big God Sunday. We're going to spend the next uh, bit of time here together letting the Bible lift our eyes way up into really big stuff. The biggest stuff, because we're talking about the very character and nature of God. And then we will gradually move through the questions I mentioned earlier. How does that impact us today? And how does that point our hearts and minds to the gospel of Jesus? But this is a big God Sunday. And those personally big God Sundays, I have mixed feelings about them. I mean, I I love them. I'm excited about them. They're partly exhilarating and partly incredibly humbling for me at the same time. It's exhilarating because I love when the scripture lifts my eyes up way beyond the normal stuff that I'm kind of focused on and I see in my day-to-day, week-to-week life. It kind of blows open my little blinders and shows me how little my blinders are. I don't even know how narrow my vision is until God expands it. And my hope and prayer is that that's exactly what he's going to do for every one of us this morning. But it's also really humbling because, frankly, I'm not up to this sermon that I'm about to give. And I felt that a couple of times really poignantly this past week preparing for this morning. I'm not up to this sermon. Um, I'm up to delivering it. I can preach God's word. That's fine. But one of the sort of unspoken assumptions is if somebody can really clearly explain the Bible, that must mean they understand it and they fully live it. And if I can clearly explain it, I probably do understand it. Unfortunately, that does not necessarily mean I fully live it. And so I feel really sort of awkward. On the one hand, I can't wait to get into this. And on the other hand, I feel like I'm not the guy who can preach this but I'm not sure any of us can. And so I would appreciate if you would pray with me one time, just as we dive in, that God would reveal himself to us and transform us, starting with me and every one of us this morning. God, thank you for the privilege of being your family, of getting to not take ourselves seriously, of getting to laugh, of getting to enjoy the good things, so many of them that you have given us. And yet, as we're about to see, the greatest thing you could ever possibly give us is yourself. To undo our focus on us and put it where it belongs on you. 
And every one of us is in desperate need of that lesson. Myself, first and foremost, I pray, God, that you would do, Holy Spirit, what only you can do. That you would come and that you would use your word to transform our vision and to shift and, and blow up our paradigms, to reframe our whole way of thinking so that we would come to see you for what you really are, the most amazing, the most beautiful, and the most awesome thing there is about life. That we would know that in our minds and that we would yearn after that in our hearts and that we would pursue you passionately as a result with our lives. And these things we pray in your name and for your glory. Amen. God's proper name is, as we mentioned, Yahweh. You see this so clearly all over the Bible. I want to start in the book of Exodus, which is the, the clearest and most prominent place where God's name is taught. If you've got your Bibles, open them up to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus is easy to find. The second book in the Bible, so just start at the beginning. Keep turning pages right until you see the word Exodus at the top of the page. We're in Exodus chapter 3. Uh, we're going to read verses 13 to 15. Now, just quickly while you're turning there, the context so we understand what's being said here because we're going to bounce into a couple of passages of Scripture this morning before ultimately landing in Philippians chapter 1. The context here is God is calling Moses, who is an adult man. He was raised in the Pharaoh's house in Egypt. He's left Egypt. He's off kind of doing his own thing, and God's calling him from the burning bush. This is that famous scene where God, uh, Moses is up on Mount Sinai on the side of the mountain kind of tending his flocks, and he sees the bush on fire, and it's not burning, and the voice of God comes out of it, and he says, I want you to go back to Egypt to your people, my people, the Israelites, and call them out of Egypt. You're going to be their leader. You're going to be my spokesman, and Moses is freaking out about this. He's like, whoa, I'm just a guy. I'm just tending sheep. I don't want any part of this. God says, tough. I'm God. You're not. Go do it. It's a summary. Now, in the process, in the process of all of this, Moses is saying, well, I mean, but that's really important. Like, who's talking? I mean, do we get to negotiate? No, because I'm God. Well, even if I obey you, God, these people aren't going to listen to me. They don't know who I am. So who shall I say is sending me? They've, they've heard of the gods of their fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who have been dead for over four centuries at this point, but they had vaguely heard that we're the Israelites and the God of our forefathers exists, but who shall I say is sending? That's where we pick it up in verse 13. Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God answers that question. God, what is your name? Who are you? What is your identity? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And when you see that word there, I am, it's this word Yahweh in Hebrew, the language that this was originally written in. God also said to Moses, verse 15, say to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. God says, not only do you in this generation today, which was several thousand years ago now from our perspective, not only did they at that time need to understand that this is who God is, but he's saying for all time, all people need to understand that this is the most important thing you can understand about me. This is the most important thing you can learn about me. I am is my name. What does this name mean? This is the most used name for God in the entire Bible. Uh, one source I looked at this week said it's used in the uh, Bible, primarily in the Old Testament, many times also in the New Testament, over 6,500 times. 
There's only 39 books in the Old Testament. Hundreds of times in every book of the Bible, you see the proper name of God on average. That's how it works out. In fact, um, a a little tip here. If you're reading through your uh, English translations of our Old Testaments like we have, and you see this phrase, the Lord, the Lord God said, uh, you know, Isaiah to speak this or whatever, oftentimes you'll notice that 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 phrase in your English Bible, the Lord is written in small capital letters, which is really odd. The reason that that's there is the English translators are calling our attention to the fact that that is the proper name of God. Everywhere you see in your Bible, the Lord in small caps, it is printed in Hebrew, the proper name of God, Yahweh, I am. The most common way to refer to God in the entire Bible, by far, because he says, this is my name, it's how I am to be remembered. What does it mean? What does it mean? Uh, The Hebrew scholars tell us that the word most literally and directly translates the one who is. If you were just to take it straightforward, that's what it means. The one who is. Or as God does in the previous verse, he then ties it in with the Hebrew verb to be and he simply says, I am. That's my name. I am the one who is. What does it mean? It means that God is the center of reality. Let's get a little philosophical here for just a minute, because this is important. It means that God is the center of reality. He is the ultimate in existence. He is the only self-existent one. Let's break that down a little bit more practically. You can break it down at least a couple of ways. There's many. We'll just stick with two. First of all, it means that God has no beginning. It means that no beginning. The most fundamental thing you can say about God is that he is simply the one who ultimately exists. That means he didn't start at any point. Uh, There's nothing or no one that created him. He always has been. He always will be. There was never a time when God was not or when God was less than he currently is. God simply is. That's the most basic thing you can say, according to the Bible, about the nature of the universe we live in. The most fundamental thing you can say, God is. Everything that we know of ultimately came from somewhere or was caused by something, right? Uh, The world as we experience it is a seemingly endless chain of cause and effect. I came from my parents. They came from their parents. They came from their parents and so on and so on. You can go back quite a a ways. If if by chance or or by the sovereignty of God, my parents hadn't met and they met or married other people, then I probably wouldn't be here, right? I can say I came from somewhere. I know where I came from. And so did they and so did their ancestors all the way back pretty far. But of course, when we say it's an endless chain of cause and effect, we know that it's not endless. Human beings have not existed for all eternity, One thing everybody agrees on, whether you're a believer in the Bible or not, is that life in humanity started somewhere. And the Bible's answer is, yeah, humanity started with God. Okay, so if you trace this uh, chain back far enough, then we all came from God. So then, the logical mind says, where did God come from? I mean, you got to keep going back, right? And the Bible's answer is, no. No, at some point the chain stops because it doesn't make any sense to think of things as just existing forever. Everything seems to, you always want to know where did this come from, where did this come from? At some point you have to say there was some beginning. And the Bible's answer is God is the end of the chain. The philosophers would say he is the ultimate uncaused cause. He gives rise to everything else, but nothing gave rise to him. It also means not only that he had no beginning or end, but it also means he depends on nothing. 
He depends on nothing for his continued existence. His existence simply is. Everything else owes its continuing existence to other things. Again, I can think of it just us as people. I need food. I need water. I need oxygen. I need a variety of things to continue to exist as a human being. If any one of those things goes away, I will not be long in this world. Our lives are very tenuous in some ways. I don't even have full control over those things all the time, but there are so many things that have to fall into place for us to continue to exist. We depend on so many different things. So what does God depend on for his continued existence? If, if something changed, what's the thing that if it changed, like God would cease to exist? What is that thing? The Bible's answer? Nothing. There is nothing upon which God depends for his existence. He doesn't depend on anyone or anything to continue to be. He simply is. He is self-sustaining. He is self-existent. By the way, on a slightly more personal note, this also means that God does not need us. And that's important to remember as we learn about and worship the God of the Bible, especially when we rightly celebrate the love that God has for us, which the Bible celebrates repeatedly and we celebrate repeatedly as we should. But we've always got to be careful when we rightly celebrate and magnify and and just stand in awe of how much God loves us. We always have to be careful not to make ourself the center of God's purpose in so doing. You see, it's a small leap for many of us to say God's love for mankind is amazing, which is true. The Bible says that, John 3, 16. God sent his own son to die. Why? Because he loved the world. Absolutely, God's love for the world led him to die for us. And yet we've always got to guard against thinking that that must mean we're so special that God just can't bear the thought of existing without me. What I just said, that last sentence, is the most anti-biblical thought I can possibly imagine. That is so not what the Bible is saying. God didn't send his son to die for me because he just can't bear the thought of living without me as if I'm that special. God sent his son to die so that the love that he has for people who don't deserve it would be put on display. God does not love me because I'm so lovable and wonderful. God loves me because he is so loving. He's the wonderful one. Do you see the difference? We're going to see that more even as we go on. God needs nothing. He doesn't even need us. He didn't didn't create humanity because he was lonely. He was kind of having a personal kind of psychological crisis. I don't know what to do with myself. He didn't create us because he needed someone to take care of to kind of justify his existence. If I don't have anybody to care for, what am I even doing here? God's like, I've got this crisis of purpose in my life, so I need to create people. No, that's not why he made us. God needs nothing, and he doesn't need us. All of this is packed into the meaning of the name I am. Here's today's big idea. If we get nothing else, it's simply this. Everything is about God, and everything is for God. God. And all that is wrapped up in him saying, my name is the one who is. I'm at the bottom of it all. I'm at the center of it all. It's all about me. It's all for me. It all came from me. It all depends on me. And I came from nothing. I depend on nothing. I am the ultimate in existence. 
In the history of astronomy, we have what we refer to as the Copernican Revolution. Um, some of you probably remember that from studying science at some point in your, in your schooling. Uh, there's this whole idea that for so many years, people would uh, do astronomy. They did astronomy for centuries, even way back in the ancient times, and charting the courses of, of stars and, and sighting comets and, and constellations and planets and all these kinds of things. And, and for so many centuries, it made sense to simply look up at the sky, and what do you see? You see everything revolving around us, the sun, the moon, the stars, everything, in very predictable patterns. There's a few oddities, but very predictable patterns. And so the assumption was, look, the universe, the solar system at least, as it was understood back then, is revolving around the earth. We're at the center of it, right? Who could deny such an obvious fact? If you don't think we're at the center of it, look up in the sky, knucklehead, right? I mean, it was, just, it was, it was obvious, it was self-evident that everything is revolving around us. Just look up in the sky and watch. The problem is there was a few things that were observed by astronomers that didn't really make sense in that paradigm. They didn't follow the paths through the sky that you would expect them to follow and so on and so forth if they were just orbiting around us in a fixed pattern. And so uh, astronomers wrestled with that and it didn't all fit. But, but by and large, that paradigm made sense. Everything is revolving around the earth until a guy named Copernicus comes along and says, wait a minute, I got a bigger, brighter idea. We're grossly oversimplifying this, but that's okay. This is a sermon, not a history of science lesson. Uh, <laughs> he says, what if... Stuff isn't revolving around us. What if we're revolving around the stuff? What if it only looks like it's revolving around us because of where we're standing? But actually, what if the Earth is not the center of the solar system, but the sun is, and both we and all of the other planets that we can see are revolving around the sun? Whoa! Paradigm shift. Completely different way of thinking about life. But you know what? As soon as people start thinking about life that way, everything that we observed in the movement of planets and stars fell into place. It made sense. So then everybody goes, that's it. That's it. We think it's orbiting around us because that's the way it looks, but in reality, it's orbiting around the sun, and suddenly it made sense of everything. Friends, that's exactly what the Bible is trying to tell us about God. It is our nature, because we're sinful human beings, to see everything from our perspective. To assume that everything in our lives is essentially about us and our lives. My goals, my dreams, my budget, my family, my retirement, my plans, my life, even my country, my community, so often it's just nature, it's natural. We just see it in terms of how does all that stuff affect me? It's as natural as people walking outside and looking up at the sky saying, look, everything's going around us. It's just the way it is. That's the way it naturally appears to a sinful heart. I am at the center of my own little world. And even God, like the bright noonday sun, even when he's really important to me, he's one of many things that are orbiting around in my sky. Even if I'm a Christian, even if I say God is the most important thing orbiting in my life, it's very easy without even realizing I'm doing it to love God and worship God and honor God and praise God and yet still do that from a paradigm that says God is about me and what my life is about. Even when I appreciate God, even when I say, God, I love the way that you love me and care for me and provide for me, I can be saying all those things which are good and right things to say from a perspective of saying, but this is ultimately about me and what you're doing for me. You're orbiting around me. And what the name of God, the proper name of God, challenges every one of us to is to undergo a Copernican revolution in our own Christian faith. To understand that actually God is not a part of my life. God is not even the most important part of my life. 
I am a part of God's life. That's the way to understand it. It's not about what God is doing to help me and guide me along my path. It's about what I am doing to fulfill God's plan and God's path. He made me for his purposes, not the other way around. You see, it's a total shift. We're both looking at the same thing, but you're looking at it from completely different perspectives. When God says, my name is I am, he puts himself solidly at the center of everything we experience in life. And he says, understand that everything you do orbits around me. It is by me, it is for me, and it exists for my purposes. In Isaiah chapter 48, God ultimately demonstrates this by saying that he, his chief pursuit is his own glory. I'm going to briefly read Isaiah 48. Um, this point is taught hundreds probably of times throughout scripture, but probably nowhere more forcefully and clearly than here in Isaiah 48. Uh, again, for those of you turning in your Bibles, um, while you're turning there, let me just set a little bit of context. Uh, the ancient Israelites had had their uh, golden age. It's already over. They've been conquered by neighboring nations. Uh, they've been slaughtered, all of their, their men and their fighters. The rest of them have been hauled off into captivity. They're no longer inside the promised land. They're not experiencing God's blessing. Life is just awful from their perspective. And God, through prophets like Isaiah, is promising them, I'm going to save you. Uh, as bad as it looks right now, there will come a day when I'm going to do a miracle. I'm, I'm going to redeem my people like you wouldn't believe. And in the process of making that promise, look what he says in Isaiah uh, chapter 48, verses 9 through 11. For my name's sake, God says, I defer my anger. That is his just anger against his own people. I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to completely annihilate you, even though that's what I should do, because you're sinners and you deserve it. <laughs> He's saying, I'm going to have mercy on you. Why? For my name's sake. That's why I do it. For the sake of my praise, I restrain my just anger for you so that I might not cut you off. Behold, he says, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in a furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? How could my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. What God is saying here to his people is that the ultimate reason that he shows mercy to sinful people who don't deserve mercy is to make his name great. You see, in the historical context of Isaiah's day, when one nation who worshipped a certain set of gods conquered another nation that worshipped a different set of gods, the understanding was not just that we have a more powerful military or economy, they would also understand that we have more powerful gods. Our gods helped us beat you and your gods couldn't overcome us. So our gods are stronger than your gods. And so when the people of God are conquered and subjugated, the nations of the world thought, oh, the God of the Bible is nothing. His name is profaned. Look, he didn't even save his people. They've been conquered. God says, I can't let you stay conquered forever. I will redeem my people because I can't let my name go on being profaned in the world. So he has to display his existence by having mercy on his people. He also has to display his character, his love his mercy, his forgiveness. I should, I would be totally just in condemning you and destroying you right now and I won't do it. Why? Because you deserve it? No. It's nothing to do with you. It's everything to do with me because I am merciful. I am gracious. I am loving and I show that. I display that when I have mercy on my sinful people. So who gets the praise for the fact that God's people are not utterly wiped out? Is it his people? Absolutely not. God is putting his own glory 
on display. God's chief pursuit is his own glory. Now that makes a lot of people very uncomfortable when we encounter teachings like this in the Bible. And again, they're all over, but it's really like in your face with the way it's worded here in Isaiah chapter 48. Uh, yeah, 48. We get a little bit uncomfortable. Wait a minute, I mean, sounds like God's like an egomaniac, right? I mean, God's all like full of himself. And what do we, what do we say about people who are full of themselves and they don't care about others? They're horrible people, right? We call them narcissists. We call them self-absorbed. So is God a self-absorbed narcissist? Well, that's a huge question we don't have time to explore fully, but I do want to say just a couple things about it, briefly. Ultimately, that's not what's being said here because the words self-absorbed and narcissist from a biblical perspective don't even make sense when they're applied to God because they assume some things about the nature of God, and that's the very thing we're talking about. Here's what I mean. In responding to this question, uh, John Piper helpfully asks another question. It's a thought provoker. Here's the question. Can God commit idolatry? It's a good question. That's one of those questions I wish I had thought of. <laughs> Think about that. Can God commit idolatry? Idolatry is the, the worship of, of idols, which were usually physical um, you know, monuments and statues back in, in Old Testament times. But, but an idol can be anything. Anything that is not God that we put in God's place, right? I can make an idol out of my career. I can make an idol out of money. I can make an idol out of pleasure. I can make an idol out of my family. I can make an idol out of anything. When I love it and I pursue it more than I love and pursue God, that's idolatry. One of the chief problems the Bible puts before us. The Bible's constantly warning human beings don't commit idolatry. Here's the question. Can God commit idolatry? It's kind of a crazy thought, isn't it? You probably initially are thinking, that just doesn't sound right. No, surely he can't commit idolatry. And that's right, but let's think about what that means. Can God put something other than God at the center of the universe? No, because to do so, he would be committing idolatry. The point is simply this. It is a bad thing when somebody's an egomaniac because that's when a person, a human being, thinks that they are the center of the universe when in point of fact, they're actually not. And everybody else around them knows it, but they're still <laughs> clueless, right? It's when a, a person treats himself or herself as if they're more important and more valuable than other people, when actually they're not. All people share equal importance and equal value. So it's wrong for me as a human being to treat myself as the center of the universe, especially if I'm treating other people as lower than me, because other people are not, in fact, lower than me. So it's wrong for me to assume that they are. But here's the thing, with God, he actually is, in point of fact, the center of the universe. And so for him to not acknowledge that would not only be making an idol, God would be putting something else at the center of the universe other than himself, but he would be fundamentally mistaken about the nature of reality. And if God can't even get that right, what the center of the universe actually is, then he's not the omniscient, omnipotent God of the, of the, of the Bible. If you can't even get that one right, you can't trust him to get anything right, and he's not God. God sees correctly, and so he correctly puts himself at the center of the universe. But you know what? There's more than this. That's kind of the philosophical answer. There's also a very personal side to this answer. In the gospel, God is giving us the most important thing that he could 
the most valuable thing that he could. Because if God is the center of the universe, as the Bible says he is, then he is also the most beautiful and valuable thing that exists. There's nothing more wonderful than God. There's nothing as pleasurable as God. It simply doesn't exist. God can't give us ultimate joy apart from himself because there is no such thing. And so when seen in this light, the God-centeredness of God, if I could put it that way, the fact that God is centered on his own glory and the fact that he commands us to be centered on his glory is actually the most loving position God could possibly adopt toward a sinful humanity. You see, God is a good, good father. And for him to take our own lesser desires, to find our own way and make much of ourselves and and have our own things and find our ultimate joy in something other than him, for him to say, okay, you do that and I'm going to help you find your joy. I'm going to help you find a purpose apart from the one I have for you. I'm going to help you achieve your own goals and dreams would be akin to a father who has the best possible steak cooked on his plate, ready to go. And his famished young son comes up who has no idea where food is. And the father says, well, I'm not sure that you really understand that the steak is what you need. So why don't you go off and rummage out in the garden and see if you can find yourself a worm. And the kid could probably go out and find a worm and eat it and live. But how many of us would say that's a good father? The good father teaches his son what real food is. The good father cooks the steak and and gives it to his son. That's what God is doing. He says, why in the world, if I loved you, would I let you have your lesser dreams? Why would I not put myself at the center of your life because I'm the greatest thing there is? I can't give you a better gift than me. And so it is his love that pursues, uh, motivates him to pursue his glory. And it's also his love of him that motivates us to pursue his glory. And this is where I want to turn to how this impacts our lives and how it shapes the gospel. God's glory is not only his chief pursuit, God's glory is to be our chief pursuit. God commands utter allegiance, total worship, and complete praise from us. And when he does so, not only is that the ultimate in clarity, that's the way the world really is, but it's the ultimate in love, since there's no greater gift that God could give us than himself. That leads us to the book of Philippians, chapter 1, where the Apostle Paul so beautifully and succinctly captures this. The context of this passage, this paragraph that we read earlier, uh, the Apostle Paul, some of you know this, had had visited the city of Philippi in, in Uh, first century Mediterranean. He had established a church there. He'd spent time with those people, developed relationships with them, and then as was his custom, he eventually moved on. Later, he got in trouble for being a Christian, which happened more than once. He was thrown in prison, and the people back in Philippi heard he was in prison, heard he was being mistreated, uh, cared about him, were very concerned about him, and he writes this letter back to them to address their concerns and his imprisonment and his uncertain future. Is he even going to live through this experience? He might have been executed. And in the process, he says several significant things. First, in verse 19, Philippians chapter 1, verse 19. Uh, Sorry, verse 20. He says, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage as now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by my life or by my death. 
What is Paul's ambition? In his own words, that Christ will be honored. That Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, will be glorified. He will receive honor and glory by my life. You see, that's a man who understands that whatever's happening to him orbits around God and his purposes, not the other way around. It's not, I'm praying that God will let me out of this prison because I want to get out. And it's not, I'm praying that if God doesn't let me out of this prison, that he'll just give me strength to endure it. Although, by the way, both of those are great things to pray. But you see, like we said earlier, it's possible to pray those things and still assume that, that, that my life is what, what's at issue here and, and whether or not God is going to help me out of this bad circumstance. But the perspective of the Apostle Paul is fundamentally different. He says, whatever happens to me, God's glory is what's at stake here, and that's all that matters. How can you say that, really, and, and, and mean it? How can you say, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter to me if I even die before my time, whatever I think my time is, before I've had a chance to live and do everything I want to do, and it's okay as long as God is glorified. You can only say that when you've undergone the Copernican revolution of the Christian faith and you understand everything is about God. And friends, this tells us something very important on a very practical and personal level. The Apostle Paul was no spiritual superhero. I firmly believe that. Sometimes we read about this guy in the Bible who suffered amazing things for Jesus and, and never wavered. And he lived in some ways this, this kind of magnificent and exemplary life of sacrifice and service for God. And we tend to assume that he was some kind of spiritual superhero, some spiritual giant. I'll never be shipwrecked or thrown in prison or beaten or potentially executed from my faith, probably, as a modern American, not very likely to happen. I'm not sure I could have stayed true to my faith. He's some great superhero. No, he wasn't. Yes, all those things happened to him. Yes, he stayed faithful, but it's not because he was something fundamentally different than you or me. Not just because he was made of different, sterner stuff. That fundamentally misunderstands everything the man says about his own experience with Jesus. He was able to endure all of that for one reason and one reason only. The Apostle Paul never got over the gospel. That's what it amounts to. He never got over the gospel. He never ceased being in awe of the beauty of God and the glory of God and that magnificence of the love of God to take a worthless person like him and give him an eternal future. And he says, once I've got that, what else do I have to lose? Nothing that's worth hanging on to. So if my very life itself is something I have to part with, as long as Jesus is glorified, I'm good. I've got way more than I could ever lose. You see, it's just a different perspective. It's not a different character. It's not a different stuff that we're made of. It's simply a different perspective. It's understanding that God is the greatest thing that I have. And so he says, verse 21, for me to live is Christ. It's what my life is all about. If I go on living, it's all for God and his glory. It's not for me and my retirement and my vacations and my plans and the goals and the dreams and my bucket list. You know, the Apostle Paul only had one thing on his bucket list. The glory of God. That was his bucket. <laughs> and it's like God can fill that through me anytime in any way he wants, even if it's striking me dead right now. If God gets glory for it, praise God. I'm going to heaven and I'll enjoy him for eternity. Hallelujah. I don't got a lot of stuff I need to get done before then because what could I possibly do that's better than this? 
He was enamored with the beauty and the glory and the love of God. And so everything he lived for, everything he strived for, everything he hoped for, everything he exerted himself for was for the glory of God. Can I say that? I'm here to tell you I can't with nearly the fullness and completion that I aspire to. That everything I strive for and hope for is the glory of Christ. I've got other things I want to do too and see happen in my life. They're not bad in and of themselves unless they supplant God in his glory and I'm not seeing him correctly. You see, whatever those things are on your list, if you have them and you don't have God, you ultimately have nothing. That's what the Bible tells us. And on the flip side, if none of those things ever pan out, if you never have the marriage you want or the kids and grandkids you want or the health that you want or the retirement that you want or whatever your issues are, if you never have any of those things but you have God, you've got everything you could ever dream of. It's that stark and it's that simple. It's not necessarily easy to think that way. It's not at all easy, but it is that simple. It's that clear in Scripture And all of this comes back to God saying, my name is I am. I'm it. I'm everything. And this is how I'm always to be known. And if you remember me this way, you will do well. And so Paul concludes this paragraph in verse 26. He says, ultimately, guys, I really don't think I am going to die. It could happen, but I I really think it's God's will that I'm going to live through this current imprisonment, not be executed, and continue on for many years spreading the gospel. And so in light of that, he says in verse 26, um, I know that I will continue so that in me, in my ongoing life physically in this world, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because you will see me again. I'm going to come and actually see you face to face again. I'm going to get through this. If I die, it's for God's glory. If I continue to live, it's for God's glory. I'm pursuing the only thing on my bucket list. And that is that, that, that you, the, the only thing that would keep me from running and experiencing God in eternity right now and hoping that they kill me so I can go to heaven, the only thing that allows me to defer that glorious day is the thought that if I hang out here a little bit longer, more people may respond to the gospel and God's glory will spread even wider so that when I do finally get to him, it will be an even more glorious homecoming. Whether I live or whether I die, I'm captivated with the beauty of God. I think that's what was in this man's heart, and that's the model the Bible puts for us as Christians. You see, is it, is it bad news? We'll kind of turn for home here with this thought. Is it bad news that the Bible says your life isn't about you? Is that a bad thing? Is it bad news that the Bible tells me my life is not ultimately about me? It's ultimately about God? Uh, Sometimes I've heard, you probably have two Bible teachers say things like, you know, God's ultimate purpose is not to make you happy. It's to make you holy. You heard things like that? When you read the Bible, there's a lot of truth in a statement like that. But initially, that doesn't go down very easy, does it? Really? Really? I mean, I guess we sort of sense maybe that God shouldn't be all about me. I mean, he's God. But on the other hand, like, he just, like, my life isn't about me at all? Really? I mean, there's a part of us that's like, but, but, but I don't mind being happy. <laughs> that's not a bad thing. God really doesn't care about that at all? Well, it's not so much that he doesn't care about it at all. It's that he cares about it far more than you and I do. 
It's exactly the opposite. Initially, the idea that my life isn't about me sounds disappointing, especially those of us in the modern West, in America, because we're so conditioned from before we can even understand language to think in terms of individual autonomy in our culture. We're all individuals on our own journey of discovery of ourselves and our purpose and our joys and what we want to do with our lives. You see, it's all about us. Go find your dream. Go pursue your hope. And if God's a part of that, if God's orbiting one of your uh, things that orbits in the constellation of your life, great, but it's ultimately about you. And when we then hear that, no, no, it's ultimately about God, it's just like we just don't even have a category for that. How could that be? But when God announces his name, I am the one who is, what it means is that it's, 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 it's laughing. And I don't mean that in a, in a punitive or derisive way, but it's just mocking, laughing at such a small vision for you to create your own dream and go fulfill it as if that's going to make you happy even in this life, much less for all eternity? What a small thing. What kind of a good father would let his beloved children have something that pathetic and petty, that worm to swallow for dinner? No, God says, come to the banquet table. Come to the banquet table. You see, the issue is we are, we are satisfied, or at least we think we will be, with the smallness of our own dreams. We don't naturally see that we exist to make much of God rather than ourselves. That's, that's the problem. That's the great challenge. Our natural bent is to look up in the sky and say, look, everything's going around us. That's just, I mean, it's hard to break that paradigm when that's all you've ever seen. That's all you've ever known. And everybody around you is saying the same thing. And so the greatest need we have is to be freed from that paradigm. And friends, I want to end with this statement from 2 Corinthians 5 because that's what Jesus died to accomplish 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Bible says, in verse 15, let me back up to verse 14 because it's a whole sentence. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Jesus died for all people. Therefore, all have died. That old way of looking at life goes away when we respond to Jesus. And look at verse 15. He died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him. From the human self-absorbed perspective, the gospel sounds, it, it sounds so crazy and so backwards. It's not, actually, when you think about it, but it initially strikes us that way. Jesus died so that others could live for him who already died. I mean, it sounds like a crazy circular thing until you realize what the Bible is saying. In the gospel, when Jesus Christ comes to die in our place for our sins, which he did on the cross, and he rose again from the dead, and then he offers us eternal life because he's paid the debt. It's free to us. It was incredibly costly for him. And he beckons us to come home and find life in him. Jesus died to accomplish what? Well, many things. Our salvation, yes. Our righteousness, yes. But you know what this is saying? Jesus died to change our taste. Jesus died to change our perspective, among other things. Jesus not only gives us the most valuable thing in the universe, God himself, to be enjoyed for all eternity, but 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that Jesus also died to so change our nature that we would want the most valuable thing in the universe more than we want anything else. 
it's not enough to give the greatest gift in the universe if people don't see it as a great gift and they turn and walk away. He's actually got to fundamentally change our nature, and that's exactly what the Holy Spirit of God does in a human heart, transforming us so that we come to see God clearly for who he is, not that he orbits around us, we orbit around him, and that's the best news in the world. Friends, that's a miracle. Only the Spirit of God can work in your heart. I'd like to invite you to close your eyes as I ask the worship team to come forward, just for a moment of reflection and prayer, that we would invite the Holy Spirit into this place to transform our vision however it needs to be transformed. God, I want to pray that you would do that. What a joy to make much of you rather than ourselves. But God, your word is clear. The Bible's clear. And and frankly, our own experience is abundantly clear that that's not a natural point of view for us. That's not naturally how we think or respond. We are in need of having our perspective shifted, our tastes changed and fundamentally altered so that what is really good and true would be seen and perceived by our hearts as what is good and true. That your glory and your centrality would not be a threat to us because we're so desperately holding on to our own centrality, but we would recognize the emptiness of that and the joy of what you are giving us when you say, worship me for I am. Spirit of God, in these next few moments, I pray that you'd move in this place and that you would change hearts, that we would come to you perhaps for the very first time or perhaps for the 10,000th time and ask you to redeem us and see your beauty for what it is and glorify you out of hearts that love and worship and rejoice in your glory. In your name we pray.